2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: We were at a soccer conference near Miami, and uh, I woke up one morning with the phone ringing. My investors were calling me to tell me to turn on the TV because Wayne Rooney, at the time, was captain of Manchester United and um, the, uh, the peak of his career, was wearing one of our products on national television, and had made a spectacular comeback when people thought that he was gonna be out for several weeks.
3: Hey, it's Sebastian Alvarado, welcome back to Coffee and Football, where I sit with some of the most interesting and influential profiles in the game to learn about their life and career journeys. This podcast is presented by 11 New York, a football brand and concept that creates refined athletic wear and original content for those of you with an eye for taste and quality. Check it out at 11NewYork.com. And full disclosure, I am a partner in the company, so maybe even further reason to check it out. It's 11NewYork.com. In today's episode, my guest is Claudio Storelli. He's the founder and chairman of Storelli Sports, a company founded almost 10 years ago in Brooklyn, New York. They make some of the most innovative, protective gear in soccer, and is worn by the likes of Iker Casillas, Jesse Lingor, and Azpilicueta to kids all over the country. Born and raised in Milan, at 15, he came over to the U.S. as an exchange student, and follow me on this one. By the age he was 20, he had graduated from Stanford University with honors. By 23, he had done the same from Columbia Law School. After that, he joins McKinsey and Company's management consultant, and in 2010, he moved to Bloomberg, where he became the chief operating officer of a $1 billion enterprise technology division. To say that Claudia is an overachiever is a bit of an understatement. This is a fascinating conversation. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Claudia Storelli. welcome to Coffee and Football.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thank you. Feeling good.
3: You told me you, you took a little walk down here. We're, we're in the studio downtown in the South Street Seaport, as usual. Uh, you're based here in the city.
1: Right. i mean in uh, East Village.
3: And real hipster neighborhood. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, my first question always obviously has to be, since the theme is Coffee and Football, how do you drink your coffee?
1: I drink coffee with a little bit of milk, and uh, despite being Italian, I am not a coffee snob whatsoever. I like pretty much all kinds of coffees.
3: Where do you get it from?
1: Uh, Usually, I make it at home, and we make it in the office. I am very easygoing when it comes to things like that.
3: Man, I I hope the Italian community doesn't hear you, because they take great (laughs) pride in their coffee. (laughs) So Claudius Torelli, founder and CEO of your own company uh, named thereafter, how do you typically introduce yourself to someone who has no idea about who you are?
1: It kind of depends on the setting but um I because the company is called with my last name, which by the way it happened because of admittedly lack of creativity at the time we created the company um we my, my co-founder and I kept coming up with very cheesy names for the company and uh, Under Armour was already taken. <laughs> so at some point, neither of us were creative. And so it's like, look, Storelli, Italian, football, it talks about fashion, family. Let's just go with that and then we can change it later. And initially it was a bit weird and then now for me, it's it's become normal. But because the company carries my name, especially if I, if I meet people that are exposed to the brand a lot of times, I actually oftentimes find myself not introducing myself as Claudio Storelli because there's a, there's a strange reaction in the way when people hear and they, they think about it. Sometimes I, I let them think that it may be a family business and I didn't actually start it. But uh, but normally if I meet someone on the plane and, and they ask me what I do, uh, I usually tell them that I, I run a sports technology company that focuses on keeping soccer players fit.
3: In retrospect, was it the right decision to name it, Storelli?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, I think it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt and I think that we've, we're making it work, so I don't regret the choice. And I've... I have a philosophy of life which is about t- learning from past mistakes but not really dwelling too much on uh, what could have been different. So I look at that and I think that for the time it was the the right decision, maybe you could have had a catchier name. But now that it's – you, when you name something, a lot of times it, the name carries some meaning but you really put meaning by, by your, through your actions. You give meaning to that thing. And so I think that now when people know the brand, they hear the name, it works.
3: Yeah, uh, you guys have done obviously a tremendous job so far. In talking about your job and your life, take me through a typical day. So from the moment you wake up, what kinds of routines do you have? And then from there on?
1: So I usually wake up to the sound of my son crying out that it's time to get up. It's usually around six thirty, seven 7 in the morning. I've a 1-year-old and uh, I spend the the first hour of the day with my son. I'm very committed as a parent and I'm my decision also to run my own company stems from the desire to make sure that I that I can do what's important to me in life. Um, an hour later, I actually I take a taxi to work. It's a beautiful car ride on the east side highway you see the bridges and then you get into Brooklyn our R&D lab and main office is in uh, in Dumbo so right next to the, the Manhattan bridge next to the Brooklyn bridge in, a, in an area that now has become very hip it was not very hip when we started get, when got at the office there the first time and um, usually I'm the first person in the office um, and I like that I walk into my kingdom this quiet I start turning on all the devices. Uh, we, have, um, we have a large TV that plays soccer all day long. I basically watch pretty much every game in every league. Out there, it's always playing in the background. And we have a lot of screens that display uh, activity in on our website and, and statistics. Uh, I like that technology aspect and the transparency that it brings to people that are within the company. Then I... Um, Pour myself a cup of coffee with a little milk. Sit at my desk. I have a desk with uh, three, three screens, which is something that I got used to when I worked in finance. And, uh, and then I start my day, and then people start trickling into the office. And uh, the office really comes to life.
3: Do you have any specific readings that you do or, or sites that you go to every day to kind of stay up to date?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I get the Wall Street Journal every morning delivered to me. I peruse the Wall Street Journal basically on the way to the taxi, unless then there's something that really catches my attention. Obviously, I pay a lot of attention to um, uh, to news in the sports world, and I mean sports business, but I also pay a lot of attention to um, macroeconomic and international politics and business because relationships with China, as an example, Europe, Russia, um, and uh, even interest rates and uh, uh, currencies have a big impact on an international business and then i try to take time on both my car ride to the office and then to my car ride back to to push my learning so i usually pick an audiobook that will be instructional in some way Uh, for example right now um, i'm uh, i'm listening to a book by a navy seal uh, who talks about parenting and uh, there's a lot of lessons you also learn about business um, and what Navy Seals go through to to condition teamwork and and push people to the boundaries and really get people to to work as efficiently and as effectively as possible, it's something that to me is very valuable. So the car ride back and, and to to the office uh, and back from uh, from the office is the time where I try to learn something new. Uh, I think I'm gonna move on to learning Spanish next, but I, that's that's the time I'm study, let's say.
3: On that note, what are other things that you do to constantly keep evolving yourself as a business leader?
1: I think a lot of it is about pushing yourself out of the the comfort zone. I try to think in a very structured way about what are the strengths that I have and then what are things that I don't do well. And then I try to pick uh, topics or even activities during my workday that pushed that I'll give you an example um, when I started the company uh, back in 2010 now the um, direct to consumer online business was really just starting to become something so you will look at the business when you started it and thought I'm going to make 5-10% of my sales through our website and then most of it will come through stores so the, the things you had to know at the time was mostly about how to sell to businesses and how to get those business, the business to succeed within a physical retail context now it's a lot more about how you tell stories and how you instruct people and educate people that are exploring your goods digitally and how do you create a very well-oiled machine to, on, in the digital business world. So I've had to really force myself, instead of hiring people to, to do things for me, to learn all those tools and figure out how I can become a smarter business person. For me, it's about identifying areas of growth that I, I know I, I should be exploring and, uh, and not being lazy. And I think that's one of the key things that I found also in sports It's nothing comes easy. And so unless I, I go through some pain and friction, I'm not going to get better. My team is not going to get better. And I try to, um, to instill that idea also in, uh, in my team.
3: We already mentioned it here, and people may hear that you do have a slight accent. Tell me about that journey that took you from Italy to the U.S.
1: My dad was really big on us learning English. So uh, starting at the age of nine, uh, they started sending me for three weeks to basically the equivalent of camps for foreign students to England. My parents made me do that from the age of nine up to the age of about 14, 15, and uh, it allowed me to become comfortable with English. And then uh, at the age of 15, my parents said, we believe that you being perfectly fluent in English and also being international will be an asset in the future. So they gave me me and my brother the opportunity to study abroad and um, depict America. And so at the age of 15, I was accepted by uh, an exchange family in uh, Dayton, Ohio, for what was supposed to be a 10-month stint to learn English in American high school. And there's a couple of reflective points that come out of that. First of all, I remember getting on the plane to come to the U.S., and my, my father, who's a very philosophical man and a very very learned man, uh, said a sentence to me in in Latin that, be, that become has become one of the the things I live by, which is "quisque artifex fortune suae est," which means everyone is the maker of his own destiny. And he, he, he sent me off on the plane with my mom crying in the background, telling me basically. This is for you to make something out of it. When I arrived, I had the big luck of being accepted by a family who's now truly a second family to me. And um, because of their support and because of my drive to make something out of it, through soccer, I was able to get noticed by colleges around the U.S. And through my determination, just being a good student, I was able to get recruited and have an offer to and be accepted to go to college at the age of 16. What school was that? I started as a freshman in 1999 at Santa Clara University, which at the time was um, really a top national program. And that year, we we made the national championship and uh, lost against Indiana University. Um, I was on the bench, admittedly. We played in the North Carolina Panther Stadium, uh, live on TV, and it was uh, just a defining moment for my life. And then after two years at Santa Clara, I realized that academically, I wanted something bigger in some sense because i was so young and because my my grades were were so good and because i was international and i played in a national championship from a check check mark perspective i looked really good from uh, academically so i applied to stanford at the time i had a i had a girlfriend in, in san francisco so i said being local will be good they took me and that's wh- that's where i finished my undergraduate in uh in 2003 but I'd, and I couldn't get a job in the U.S. because I had no work visa, so graduate school was really the only the only path. So I thought I studied economics, philosophy, maybe law is a good field. So I applied to law schools, got into Columbia Law School, and uh, decided to go to law school. So at 20 years old, I find myself at Columbia Law School. Uh, did that for for three years, and um, after that, I still had no work experience. I was still really young. It was. 23, but I had a graduate degree, and my resume looked really good. So I realized at the time that I didn't want to be a lawyer, and so I applied to a stretch position for me at a management consulting uh, firm in New York, and uh, I somehow they decided I was a good candidate, despite complete lack of experience. And, uh, and so I started a, a McKinsey & Company here in New York uh, at the age of 23 with a position as a postgraduate role, even though I had basically not really done anything in my life other than studied and had a few summer jobs. Um, and I remember starting there and uh, being in the training class, and uh, they put us into a group of uh, just four people. And I look around the, the this small room, and we start introducing each other. One of the, the guys in the group was the f- one of the founders of Facebook, uh, Eduardo Saverin, who, if you watch the movie, ends up taking an internship in New York. That's where I met him. And another person who uh, was a, a Australian doctor, um, at, uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, an incredible person who is now the global head of strategy of the largest asset manager in the world uh, and still a close friend of mine. So I was really out of my league. I mean, I had done nothing. But then worked in New York in, in the finance world through McKinsey for, for five years and uh, learned a lot. It was like... Business boot camp uh, got my butt kicked many many ways because I was I was really out of my league, um, but survived for five years and uh, and then at that time it's when I it was around 2009 2010 when I decided that I I wanted to take matters really in my own hands and start a company and, and do it on my own. Um, so that's when I started Storelli, but I had no money, so I needed to do it with a job a day job. So I applied for a position at Bloomberg um which is a you know large financial services technology company in New York and so for several years I ended up nurturing this startup company at night really and on on weekends so I was in a suit during the day and then you know talking to Chinese factories or you know des- looking at designs for protective wearing soccer uh at night and that's that's really the the path that took me from being a nine-year-old learning English to then a 15-year-old studying in the U.S. and then eventually starting a company. Wow.
3: I mean, that's quite a path to be that young. Clearly, we're extremely talented as a student primarily. Where did that come from? Because it sounds like it was a fairly easy ride when you talk about it. Obviously, getting to Stanford at such a young age, getting to law school... At Columbia. And to put it into some perspective, these are the top programs in the country. Where did that study head come from?
1: It really came from my family. And I, I realized at some point uh, in, in college, as I was basically reporting back to my parents and calling really long distance and Skype wasn't even in existence at the time. And a lot of it for me subconsciously came from wanting to make my parents proud they gave me this opportunity and I felt like failure was not an option and so every time I went into a class my goal was always to just get an A. I basically strived for academic perfection and I just studied, I don't want to say compulsively, but I, I took no chances. I I was just a very good student and the type of dedication is something that ended up sticking with me. Uh, also in soccer even though talent plays uh, plays a big role in it and i just you know i'm i'm i was not buffon and i didn't have a lot of those gifts so my career didn't go quite as as well uh, but uh, but it was really a sense of determination and knowing that what i didn't have in talent or just raw intelligence i could make up at least try to make
3: up with hard work <laughs> Hey, just a quick update Coffee and Football is now presented by Eleven New York a football brand of high quality apparel that includes cotton tees French terry bottoms and my favorite socks made out of merino wool all products are made in Los Angeles and in North Carolina please visit elevennewyork.com to view it all and it's a special for Coffee and Football listeners for a 15% off your next purchase use discount code CF11 that is CF and the number 11 thanks guys So in talking about Storelli, tell me about the moment when it hits you that this is a decent idea and I'm going to go for it.
1: I was playing uh, indoor soccer at the Chelsea Piers here in New York. And um, there's a lot of corporate teams. And it was a game actually between the McKinsey office from the New York office against the New Jersey office. And we took it pretty seriously. Uh, we There was a, a lot of physicality and it's, you know, there's this plexiglass around it. So there's a lot of bumping around At the end of the game, we all walked out of the pitch and we were all limping or we were all like looking at like scratches and bruises. And I looked at it and I thought, the game itself is the beautiful game and I find so much joy in it. But all I need is one little injury and not because of the the pain itself or because it's an injury that will, you know, see you out for a really long time. The destruction of the pain itself or, or the injury or the fear of the injury detracts so much from the game to the point where going into the game or maybe the next game, it's in the back of your mind and you want to avoid it. And so you don't go in as hard. You don't, you don't play as carelessly, it's the wrong word. You don't play your heart out. And I always approach soccer with the idea that I played soccer because I loved it. I was obsessed with soccer. I am as a fan. I am as a soccer player. I just find joy in it. And the idea that something could ruin that experience bugged me. And when I looked at what equipment providers were providing, they were providing fantastic shoes and fantastic goalkeeper gloves or other gear. And yet, these fancy Wall Street people were coming out all bruised. And so I thought, nobody's doing it. There is a need, and I find it to be very important, more important than than whether the shoes that I'm wearing are the best, fastest shoes in the world. And then very, very naively, I thought, how hard can it be for me to create a solution? And so, again, naively partnered with a, with a fellow uh, soccer player who was also entrepreneurially minded and we organized a lunch to talk about what we've left to do to create a company that solved that problem
3: and then what happened
1: so after that one lunch led to a number of to-do lists for each one of us, and again, we were the the kind of people that would just not let things go, and so we just kept driving it, and we just kept tr- uh, running into issues and trying uh, trying to solve them. And one of the first issues was to figure out how would two non designers design clothing. We knew the need because we played, so we knew what we needed to protect, and but we didn't have the technology, we didn't have the design capabilities, we didn't have the manufacturing capabilities, and so we we split tasks. Um, my my partner was uh, was a PhD in biophysics and um, uh, very well tuned with also the uh, foreign manufacturing because he's uh, he's half Chinese half American and um, he started tackling arguably some of the harder logistical questions uh, and then we started looking at technology partners that could help us solve the problem and then we through sheer chance we found uh, an amazing designer and uh, the person is our head of product and head of technology today and still you know one of my closest friends and teammates and it all happened in many ways by
3: chance what was the first product they developed
1: the first product that we developed uh, was a pair of goalkeeper sliding shorts because goalkeepers obviously take a lot get a lot of abuse all you need is in preseason is to slide on a bad surface to just get a nasty bruise on your leg they will heal over the course of weeks if you don't don't touch it. But if you have another practice the next day, the first dive, you're going to feel so much pain and it's going to reopen the wound. And it, it's hugely distracting to the point where um, if you play, sometimes the, the goalkeepers will say, I can't dive because I'm, I'm injured. And I hated that because there's nothing better, for at least for a goalkeeper, than to dive at every opportunity you have and really play with, the joy. And so we focused on the product and we decided to design something that will be really light and ergonomic, but at the same time, extremely protective.
3: How did you finance it? Because it sounds like a lot of product development. I mean, a lot of costs associated with that.
1: Yeah. Initially, everything came out of our pockets.
3: So we were very
1: reckless. I had no concept of savings or the, the need to save for future needs. So my partner and I just invested probably way too much money into the business with a certain reckless confidence that we will be able to make it up in the future if it really came to that.
3: And then from there on, how did you go about to start selling this? You mentioned that there weren't any products like that around. So you're essentially creating a new category, which means that you need to tell people about it and educate and create the need.
1: One of the first calls that I ever made to an external vendor, was uh, to Soccer.com. And the reason for that is we had learned that they were the primary retailer in the U.S., but also learned that the company had started from two brothers who had started the business from scratch back in the 90s and uh, they had a reputation for, for being nice people. So I called up customer support, get on the phone with some nice lady from North Carolina, And she's expecting me to ask about I don't know Nike shoes and the size or something like that. And instead, I asked about their CEO and whether he was a nice guy and whether how I could get in touch with him. She was very nice and she told me, "Oh, here's the office of uh, the the phone number of the office of the president." Picked up the phone. I left the voicemail and I basically said, "Hi, I'm Claudio Storelli. I'm a nobody. I have this idea. I really admire what you've done. I'd love." to talk to you and just get your advice if you can spare a few minutes and sure enough and a sign that if you reach out to people and you mean well and you find the right person on the other end like good things can come I got a call back and I had a very good chat we were invited to North Carolina to present our thoughts and I give a a lot of credit to that decision, because you can imagine what the life of a CEO of a large company is like, and some random kid calls you with a silly idea that will, stands to make you very little money at best in the big scheme of what soccer.com is. But it gives you a sense of the character and the the, the quality of people behind that business. And um, them, those meetings in North Carolina gave us a lot of confidence and showed us that there were other like minded people in the industry. And so, soccer.com ended up being one of our first customers, and at the time was uh, July 2011. That's when we started selling our first
3: units. What did he tell you when you first pitched the idea?
1: So Mike Moylan is a very, very happy, very outgoing guy, uh, and he was just very, very energetic, and um, he uh, didn't discourage me. Uh, and it's funny because had I been in his shoes, I probably would have said, listen, very difficult industry you're trying to create a niche you know good luck to you but maybe you should stick to finance or do something else but instead he said look interesting idea come talk to us see if there's something there so he was encouraging and he he opened the door a little bit he didn't say we're gonna buy a lot of it or you're gonna become a billionaire with it but it was enough to to give us hope and um,
3: that's how it started so you go down there you pitch in the idea, then. How does it actually happen like how do you go about setting the price for instance and how do you know that's the right level that you're setting yourself at
1: from a pricing perspective we there's two there's two drivers of price setting one of them is um, the cost of the goods obviously that sets the low bar then on the on the high end you see what's Comparable out there, and what customers are realistically willing to pay for for something, and uh, and then there's uh, there's your own conscience and your own desire to do something that people will really embrace. So we always took took the philosophy of packing the goods with as much good stuff as you made sense to. So we always thought, and we looked at Apple a lot and and as an example, and we said, if the product is well designed. We can add features that are truly value-added. Let's do it, even if our margins will, will will suffer. And then let's set a price that is justified by the value that we're bringing, but not so high that it will become unreasonably expensive. So an example is: we make a, a beautiful padded undershirt for goalkeepers, which costs us way too much to make. It's currently priced at ninety dollars. You can buy Under Armour just. Shirts for probably 120, 130 that have no padding, they have no technology, they just keep you warm. We do that and much more, but we press it at $90 because we know that the player is going to be a 15 year old, a 17 year old, a 13 year old that can't afford to spend a lot of time $150 for something like that. So we decided to take a hit so that we could be able to get in front of people and get the pro- products adopted. And we actually then never really hiked the price as we probably could do right now. Because in many cases, I believe that as a brand, we will do better if we keep things in front of people and we get a lot of appreciation for the brand and the products as opposed to trying to maximize short-term profit.
3: So once you started selling at uh, soccer.com, what was that initial period like? Were the products flying off the shelves or...
1: (laughs) No, I remember a really funny meeting with one of their heads of marketing where my partner and I were there and we're talking and discussing all these incredible products they were trying to bring to market. And actually, our head of design was there too. And then we, we said, So, you know, tell us, like, wh- how much do you think we're going to sell of this? And he looks at us and said, Are you putting a lot of marketing money behind it? And we're like, Probably not to start. So he thinks about it and said, You'll sell one or two units. <laughs> 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 so my partner and I look at it, or look at each other, and just like wide in the face, we're like one or two units. Uh, you know, just to put into context. When you make products of this kind, even the most forgiving factories will, at the very least, produce 500 units. So that means spending you know, 250 years to to sell through a production run. So that's when it dawned on us that we couldn't just build great products and that in this world in general, marketing is just so important. Um, And so that's when we decided that it was essential for us to really build a brand that spoke to people and that explained what we did in an inspiring way as opposed to just making a great tool uh, that nobody really knows about and that nobody associated with, with, uh, with emotions.
3: And how did you go about that marketing?
1: Initially, it was all about deciding what the brand will stand for. And I found the part easy from one perspective and difficult from another. Easy because we had a very clear philosophy behind it. Our brand doesn't stand, is not the brand that stands for winning at all costs or we don't tell you that our products will make you win. That's not why we created them. We created them so that whether you are Icar Casillas, uh, I've won everything in your, in your life and you are just want to keep playing. Or you are a nine-year-old just starting up. We want to make our products something that allows you to leave all distractions in the locker room. And when you step on the pitch, all you focus on is the game and you get lost in it. So we always had a very clear idea that our products deliver, yes, physical benefits. That's the main benefit when you look at it superficially. But the major benefit is the psychology. And really what what I see as the ultimate benefit is your ability to get lost in the moment. So with that concept of letting time really fly by when you're playing with our gear, because you're so in it, um, we have to start telling a story that players and also a lot of the parents would, uh, would recognize. And... We learned quickly that you cannot sell protection as a defensive mechanism because a lot of players don't really recognize that necessarily as a need or something they 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 seek. Um, if you if you're just starting to ride a bike and your parents force a helmet on your head, you feel dorky. You feel like they think you're you have your training wheels on and it, it's not a sign of strength. We needed to tell convince people, really communicate to people. That this is not f- because you're afraid. This equipment is because you want to kick butt. This is because you wanna, you're serious about your trade and you want to leave nothing to chance and you just want to love every second of it. And that's where then a lot of the, the communications around and how we talk about the gear started evolving.
3: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How long did it take, by the way, from when you had that initial idea, you sat down with your partner for lunch, and you guys decided to start this company to essentially when you sell your first product?
1: We started, the first conversation happened in fall 2009. We didn't actually create Storelli Sports at the time, LLC, um in until april 10th 2010 and we didn't sell our first products until july 2011 so you basically almost had, you know almost two years from conception to first product in market
3: in those first few years was there ever a moment when you really doubted
1: i mean yes many 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 moments uh the path has been far from easy. Uh, for it's uh, There's just so many hurdles that come your way. Um, and to take a step back, we had no experience. We had never manufactured anything. It's one thing to say, you know, put something, sketch something, and put a logo and design a product that's on paper, that's easily done. But then translating that into physical patterns uh, a product that can be easily put together with the right technology um, and then looking after all of the logistics that go into sourcing all those materials getting them in the right place the quality control in the manufacturing and then all the logistics to shipping it back and then distributing it where there's a lot of capital that goes into it, it takes a, a lot of money it takes a lot of time and I can't tell you how many times I'd be in Italy for Christmas with my parents uh, on December 30th at 2 in the morning when everybody was sleeping. And I'd be on the phone with uh, my partner in the US trying to figure out why something was delayed or why something was produced with a mistake in a... I think we feel, we face bankruptcy pretty much every 12 months. And uh, there are many, many moments of self-doubt. But at the same time, there was always something in the back of our minds that maybe brought me back to me at school that said, you know, failure is just not an option. Keep pushing. you got to figure out a way to
3: make this work. What did those moments do to the kind of interpersonal relationships uh, within the team? They can be really
1: stressful for a team, and that's why I think that it's extremely important for a company. It's really also applies to your family or to any personal relationship. To have a philosophy that embraces challenge. We mentioned it earlier. The struggle, the friction that comes with, with building, with growing, needs to be accepted. Uh, there's a, a line or a quote from a, from a book I was just uh, reading by a Navy SEAL um, that, that says You're, you're a
3: lot into the Navy SEALs here, huh? That's right, yes.
1: I, I admire their training and uh, the philosophy behind it that says the easy day was yesterday just know that tomorrow will bring challenges but don't look at those challenges with fear embrace those challenges because they will make you stronger and it sounds cheesy but it's also what makes life fun if i give this example to my wife all the time we'll go and she'll start you know i have to listen to me talking about challenges and business etc and sometimes i take a step back and tell her look if someone tomorrow gave me a lot a winning lottery ticket for 2 billion dollars and told me Claudio you're now financially set I wouldn't stop because where's where's the fun in that I personally don't care about fancy cars I don't care about anything really so long as I can put food on the table for the family what really drives me is is the challenge is the idea of building it's the idea of getting people together, united towards a common goal so that you can build something. And so I'm lucky that the core people that stayed with us from the beginning, so this example, Tom Marchese, who's uh, the most talented person I know and uh, uh, an absolute pillar of our company, um, who's been with us since 2010. The The philosophy that we shared has always been to embrace these moments of difficulties and the people that have work for a company and then fallen off uh, along, along along the way are really the ones that got to a certain point where when they looked ahead, they thought there's not enough here for me or I'd rather take a path that is a little bit less uh, stressful. And I think that especially now when I look around the office uh, and uh, and the, all the people that work for a company, I think we have a makeup of people who share the same philosophy and um, the, we have a list of 10 work principles we, we live by. Um, and uh, a lot of it has to do with getting out of your comfort zone and knowing that friction needs to be embraced.
3: So when when you felt like or or you saw that now we're actually starting to reach a bit wider. We're a real company. It's gone from an idea to a cool product to getting into some retailers. But what was the tipping point?
1: I think that the one of the defining moments um, happened in 2013, so a couple of years in, when we were at a, at a soccer conference near Miami, and uh, I woke up one morning with the phone ringing. My investors were calling me to tell me to turn on the TV because Wayne Rooney, at the time, was the captain of Manchester United, and um, the, uh, the peak of his career was wearing one of our products, the head head protection, the head guard. Um, on national television and had made a spectacular comeback when people thought that he was going to be out for several weeks. And he proceeded to have one of the most productive stints of his career where he got England qualified for the World Cup, he had some amazing goals, and was always wearing this iconic headband that made a lot of people think, what is he wearing on his head? And our logo, even though uh, the team had often colored it so that you wouldn't really see it, was rather visible and he put us in the map and he and he gave us a sense of saying wow our what started as two guys and the equivalent of a new york garage uh is now in the in front of billions of people watching tv and being used by one of the top players in the world um and give us a lot of street cred Um, that was really one of the the key moments where it kind of dawned on us
3: how did that happen
1: so that's another story of Hustle. Um, I was reading the Italian Gazzetta dello Sport online and I saw a picture of Wayne Rooney with a huge gash on his head and the fact, the news that he was probably going to be out for several weeks because uh, he couldn't head the ball. And we were at the time developing our head guard and it was very much in the preliminary stages. When I say preliminary stages, we couldn't get sizing right because it's actually the sizing is highly unconventional and you're trying to create something that will really hug your head, but without having uh, Velcro or some annoying devices uh, and will have to be really, really productive. We knew we had something that could really help. So I called up some friends at uh, World Soccer Shop, who we were close with, was part of the Soccer.com family. And uh, I said, do you know how email addresses work at Manchester United because they deal with a lot of the replica shirts. They say yes, it's first name, last name at um, manunited.com. So we looked up the team doctor and I sent a Hail Mary email to them saying, when Rooney had injury, solution. And we said, we have the solution. I got a quick response back saying, sure, FedEx over some samples and I sent them out. That was on a Thursday. I then take off on Friday, go to Miami and Saturday morning, when Rooney's wearing the head guard <laughs> on TV. And that's that's how it started.
3: Did sales after that peak? or <laughs>
1: No. <laughs> so you would expect something like that to to give you all of a sudden to make the business. But it, it's not one of those stories where a brand goes on a vogue and suddenly becomes uh, the next new thing. Because what we sold, what we created, was something that had a very specific purpose. Only people that perceived that as a need that started gravitating towards the brand so it gave us a certain level of notoriety and let's call it street cred but it didn't necessarily make the business commercially it just meant that we were now a name that people in some cases knew or we could say hey we're the same brand that makes that
2: 10 minutes to play Rooney it is and Rooney scores his first goal of the
1: season
3: We've talked a little bit about the headgear, uh, about some of the goalkeeper sliders. What does the product range look like?
1: We aim to have a solution for any relevant injury in soccer from head to toe, with the exception of shin pads. And the reason for not doing shin pads is because I truly believe that we should do things when we can do exceptional things and really add value. And uh, I just don't see a need for more shin pads. There's already millions of them, and I still use the ones that I use as a sophomore in college, and they work just fine, so I don't see that as a need. But from for the lower, like for example, we decided that one of the problems that people face is that shin pads often move around, and they can be really annoying. But more importantly, when you get tackled and when you tackle, you, the impact is... Often everywhere else in the leg or the ankles, but the shin pad itself, which saves you every once in a while. But it's almost rare to just get hit on the shin pad really hard. It's otherwise you wouldn't see so many players rolling on the ground. So we for there we created one of our first products was a, a what we call a leg guard, which is a sleeve that holds your shin pad, and you can put whatever shin pad you want in. It's designed to fit any types of shin pads, but then adds this very specialized type of soft but highly resistant padding on the side of the leg and on the ankles so that when you, get, when you get tackled, you can basically run through tackles unless you obviously lose your balance. And from there, then we protect, we have many different types of sliders uh, that are designed to protect from very light ones just from turf burns to then impact and different levels of impact, different types of pants, upper body protection mostly for goalkeepers, and then head. And then in addition, we have a line of uh, protective goalkeeper gloves And we have some footwear, primarily in socks and insoles, that are designed to help tractions of your feet, uh, reducing blisters, but also giving you the ability not to lose valuable reaction time when you're diving as a keeper or when you're sprinting as a field player.
3: What's the best-selling product?
1: Right now, they are the leg guards, the gloves, and the headgear. If you think about it, it, it makes sense because from the goalkeeper perspective, gloves are an item where you need several pairs a year. So once people try our gloves, and they're really second to none in quality because we actually share our factory with a couple of the biggest brands. And then when you look at it from a field player perspective, everybody wears shin guards, so leg guards are just a no-brainer. They work really well from professional players to little kids, so we we move a lot of units of those. And then headgear, because we're really the the premier company, if really consider ourselves the, the only real company in that space. And so when players are worried about concussions or they're worried about head injury or returning from a head injury um, we are we're the go-to
3: when it comes to head injuries or concussions I mean it's a big topic even beyond soccer how do you need to approach that product I can imagine that there's you know you can run into you know liability or claims and
1: so in two ways first of all that's the kind of product where you cannot take shortcuts We made a conscious decision at the very beginning of our our effort in the headgear space to design a headband-style product. We have been asked to create all kinds of different versions. We only make one product, and we make the best product we can make of that type. It doesn't come in all different colors. It doesn't come in all different shapes and forms. We make one product, and we make sure that that one is the best possible. To give you an example, one of the ways in which we make it the best possible product is... We have an exclusive partnership with the manufacturer of U.S. Army and Special Forces helmets. We take the lining that they use for the helmets of Navy SEALs and, you know, Special Ops forces. We change the padding so that it doesn't remove spring from the ball, so that you can have the ball without affecting the way that you had it, and then put it in the form of something that fits really comfortably on the head. But when it comes to then impact absorption, it is now proven through studies so Virginia Tech does a rating of headgear similar to the one they do in football and and hockey and we are the uncontested number one and it is because of the design of the product and the materials that we put in it which are all made in in the US and so really make the cost of the product much higher but it means that if you want to decrease the risks of injuries there's nothing better that's number one and the second thing is about communications and it's always been our philosophy to be really blunt about what we do and what we don't do. So our headgear, for example, and I think things are about to change, um, there's no study that has ever been conducted at scale that can demonstrate the impact on concussions. So we don't say this is an, it's not an anti-concussion band. What it is, is it's a headband that absorbs impact so that if you get hit with a head-to-head collision or by the ball, it will do the most anything can possibly do and still be usable in soccer to cushion that blow. And we have the lab studies to show that it's very effective at that. What happens within in the brain is a different matter. And so far, we haven't made any claims to that, even though Virginia Tech actually forecasts the reduction in concussion risks and assigned to our product uh, um, 84% reduction value, which is, if you think about it, means really, really high. There's almost 80%, nine out of 10 concussions can basically be removed according to their model. But we don't lean on that because we believe that what's really needed is a large field study. You need to have thousands of kids with the headgear, thousands of kids without as a control group. And then over the course of years and seasons, you need to measure concussions with the right staff to assess them, to then look at whether statistically you're really having an impact because lab tests are very controlled and it's really hard to simulate what really happens on the field. So far, the data has been missing, but luckily, a study was commissioned two years ago um, by NOXE, which is the the North American body that regulates uh, protective wear in sports, and the results are coming out in a matter of, potentially, months, if not weeks. So there will be something, a big piece of uh, research that will come out in the near future There will be the most conclusive data on whether our headgear actually helps concussions. And we're very bullish that it will show some very strong positive results.
3: We talked about some of the early marketing efforts that that you did in, in creating the brand. Where you are today, what does your approach look like?
1: Right now, we're focusing on... We have two major line of communications. One of them is focusing on goalkeepers as a class because goalkeepers are really they are in a class of their own it's a the personality of a person that becomes a goalkeeper is tends to be different you need to
3: and to make it very clear you are a goalkeeper. i am a
1: goalkeeper yes so uh, i i i know i know what it's like Uh, so we like to think of ourselves as basically the ferrari of goalkeeper gear what we make is second to none because a lot of the bigger brands focus primarily on gloves, but don't really uh, look at at the body as much. So in in social media and our communications, we say our gear is built like no other. And it is, if you don't want to take any chances, this is where you go. And it's why we get a lot of incoming requests from professional players. When people look at our website, they see a lot of bigger names. There's a lot more that wear the gear. We just don't have the rights to show their imagery. We pay none of them. Literally, we don't pay any professional athlete to wear our gear. We never have. And the reason for that is because what we do is not a logo on a shoe. And there's a million types of shoes. And so, as a player, you can say, hey, who's going to pay me more? I'm going to wear this or this other brand. We do something that will enrich your experience on the field, will enrich the, your performance, and also will lengthen your career. Which is why, if you look at Instagram and you look at what Iker Casillas is wearing a practice, you will see the Storli logo, and you will see goalkeepers from West Ham to uh, Real Betis uh, wearing our gear. They do it because they love, they love it, and they love what it does to them. And so we like to talk to goalkeepers as a class because we respect it, we really value it, and that's one. Then there's the field players. And field players is a different beast because uh, it's also a much more crowded space and it's dominated by some really large brands. And so there, the messaging is uh, not completely different, but we focus on uh, different elements that are more um, performance-oriented because that's what a lot of field players are primarily uh, drawn to. And so we try to show them the benefits of wearing our gear as a driver of confidence and, uh, again, the, the ability to remove those distractions. And if you're playing against a really physical defender, how do you stop from being worried about <laughs> what the contact may feel like and how do you just focus on how you get through to them or you know, get by them without having to worry about getting hurt?
3: You've mentioned a couple of pretty big names here. In addition to Casillas, what are some of the other players? So at the moment,
1: um, we work with uh, Jesse Lingard of Manchester United, who's just been a spectacular story. We started working with him when uh, he was really coming up, and then he had a breakthrough year in the World Cup, and now he's a, he's a full-out star. Uh, we work with Cesare at, at Chelsea. We work with uh, Stefan Fry, Seattle Sounders. We work with Iker, and we're now looking to work more officially with a couple of other names that unfortunately I can't mention. Uh, but one of them is a U.S. men national team player. One is a U.S. women's national team uh, player. Both names we're very excited by. And then another one is an um, English Premier League top uh, goalkeeper.
3: Once you started getting those, the, the big names, did you see a big difference in, in sales?
1: Again, not the way that you would imagine. The benefit has been one of credibility. People realize that those players are using the gear because they like it and not because we're paying them because frankly imagine trying to compete with nike to drawing nike athletes to where you get i mean the amount of money they're asking for is just ridiculous so we wouldn't be able to do that so players and you know customers hopefully can see through our no bs attitude and saying things how they are and they believe in the concept because they see these players wear it whether then you're going to make the leap and try the gear is a different story. So when Jesse Linger started wearing our gear, it's not like all of a sudden all the Manchester United fans started buying Storelli gear. But some of them who are maybe feel the need see that and say, okay, like if he's wearing it, then maybe there's something to it. Let me try it out. And what we see is that when people try one of our products, they tend to come back and purchase many others. Because they, they work well, they're comfortable, and people see value in it.
3: If you could spend, let's say, only two hours a week on your business, what would you do?
1: I would make sure that the people within it are trained to, to look at the key things that really matter for the business in the right way. Because ultimately, delegation is, is essential, and I think that when I think back at also my daily routine, there's a lot of time that gets spent in checking emails and doing things where you may feel better because you feel like you're doing things, but you're not really progressing. So if I only had two hours, I would strive to have three key priorities set out for myself and then for the business really, and then ensuring that the people within the organization know what those priorities are. So there's, extreme clarity and have the tools to be able to to take care of them
3: do you seem to be you know the type of business leader you you read up a lot you seem to be thinking a lot about how to manage how to optimize things what are techniques or what are things that that you look for that you then can apply to your specific role
1: and you mean uh, things as in things that i can learn or things in other people
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think because you bring up an interesting point, right? And I think we all run into that a lot. You know, we have so and so many hours during a day, if we actually analyze it, we do spend so much time on responding to other people's needs. Uh, We constantly check email, there's so much time that if you analyze it, it probably gets wasted. So you as kind of this innovative uh, business leader like what are some of the things you do to uh, to optimize your time and are there any kind of le- learnings on that note that you can share
1: i have two thoughts and i mean take them with a grain of salt that's just my perspective as a startup guy uh, at its first main major effort when it comes to my allocation of time and i've started implementing this much more rigidly lately is I really try to think of what are the key elements that will drive competitive advantage and sustainability for my company, and when you really really end up thinking about them you you there's a million things your company does, but there's only a couple of them that distinguish it and that are essential to it continuing to so um i I try to identify those those priorities, and when I look at what comes through my desk uh, and what comes through the desk of my colleagues, I try to think, ask myself a very simple question. Is this helping towards priority one, two, or three? And if the answer is no, short of that person just being done with their work, which never happens, um, I say, set it aside. It's a distraction. The ability to sift through distractions and just focus on something starts with defining what you need to focus on and initially uh, because we were so starved for growth it was very easy for us to basically go after every single opportunity and then with in some sense experience i started getting a sense for what things are game changers and what things really matter and what don't and then keep the list in front of you and ask yourself is this helping and if it's not it doesn't that's with business stuff but then throughout your day you get all kinds of emails from people asking you hey can you talk to me about this or what about this or what about that and very selfishly just from my professional perspective i ask myself uh, two questions one of them is is this a person that i really care about and do they really need me if the answer is yes to both then dedicate the time if it's your uncle cousin best friend Uh, somebody you care about somebody who you want to see succeed and they're asking you to have coffee with them for an hour to help them think through something then do it karma will pay back even if it's just the satisfaction of seeing that person succeed do it but if it's a remote acquaintance that you're not really invested in or do not particularly care about or it's a topic that is just not even that important or necessary to them, then you got to be able to look at your time and say, look, I'm sorry, I cannot do it. And I think there's something powerful in recognizing that you need to protect your time and you need to be comfortable with saying no to some people at some times. That's one. And then the other the other thing that I ask myself is, some, a lot of times opportunities come about and I, I look at them and I say, will exposure to this person or this company enrich me in my way or another? Example, maybe you're being... Approached by a company in a completely different field, and it's a field that interests you, and maybe it's a it's a business leader that you admire. There's nothing for you in that meeting directly. Your business will not benefit. There's no business deal to come out of it. But you're gonna learn about a different way of doing things. You're gonna uh, meet a new person that you find interesting. That's enriching to you as a business leader and as a person. So in that case, then I look at that and I say, okay, yes, this is expanding my network in a, in a valuable way or expanding me as a person or, and a business person so I, I take the meaning but say, you need to be able to say no
3: Hey just a quick update Coffin Football is now presented by 11 New York a football brand of high quality apparel that includes cotton tees french terry bottoms and my favorite socks made out of merino wool all products are made in Los Angeles and in North Carolina Please visit 11newyork.com to view it all. And it's a special for coffee and football listeners. For a 15% off your next purchase, use discount code CF11. That is CF and the number 11. Thanks, guys. All right, so we're getting towards the end here. I typically shoot a set of rapid-fire questions. Uh, If there's anything you want to elaborate on, feel free to do so. But they're typically fairly brief. So,
1: what's your favorite team? AC Milan.
3: Where does that come from?
1: My my dad happened to be an AC Milan fan, and I grew up in the in the 80s in Italy when Milan had Marco Van Basten and Ruud Gullit and uh, Giorgio Weah, and I just fell in love with the team and follow every game.
3: If you can't say Messi or Ronaldo, who is the best player in the world? I'll tell you. Uh, we talked about it
1: briefly earlier. I, at the moment, the player I'm obsessed with is uh, Piotek, the new forward for, for AC Milan. Because I the team has been struggling for a while, and I've been waiting for someone to come about that could give joy back to the game. And uh, I just now watch the games just to see him, because I just find him to be a like, really inspiring player.
3: All right, you heard it here for the first time, Claudio Storelli he appoints Piotr as <laughs> the best player in the world after Messi and Ronaldo. <laughs> hey, we, we all have our, our perspectives and opinions. Let's not talk about that, that credibility and, and <laughs> soccer knowledge, but we'll, we'll, we'll take that. What's the biggest moment of your career?
1: Maybe it was just the the time... Maybe it was that, the lunch meeting back in 2009 where I decided I'm, I'm going to do this.
3: What are you uniquely qualified to do?
1: Probably very little. Um, but I think that the common theme that I find driving me and that maybe one day will take me into completely different fields is uh, getting teams of people excited about making a change and effective at driving that change.
3: What's a recommendation for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? To
1: commit to facing difficulties and uh, with a smile and to be, to be conscious of the fact that uh, planning is indispensable. You have to do it, but the plans are, in most cases, completely useless and that things will change completely and you need to you're going to need to deviate course and need to be flexible because when you start something it's very unlikely that things will play up exactly the way that you imagined
3: this is very similar but what's a recommendation for somebody with a startup idea
1: i will say the first thing is to make sure that you're passionate about the topic and about what you are embarking on because uh you're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about it. And uh, you need to be committed for what's what's coming. Because otherwise, if you go into it, and as soon as you hit some hurdles, you're going to be discouraged. If you're that type of pers- personality, you better get yourself psyched. Because m- there are more hurdles ahead of you than you probably imagine.
3: Who's a business leader you look up to that you think people should follow?
1: So this may, may be a bit strange, but over the years I've had the um, the fortune of interacting with Mike Bloomberg uh, a few times and um, what very few people realize is that Mike Bloomberg is the is actually the sixth uh, richest person in the US after you know Zuckerberg and you know uh, Bezos and a few others but he gives uh, all of the profits of the company to charity and the company is wildly profitable so after being incredibly successful, Mike embraced the the objective to, in many ways, make the world a, a better place. And one of the biggest areas that he invests in is um, the environment. And I find that even though Mike continues to be very driven and very very pragmatic, he's not a person. It's not again. He's not a Mother Teresa person. Like when you meet the guy, he's no BS and. He will do what's in his interest. Ultimately, the output of his success goes to, I think, create a better future. For example, my son, when I think of you know what's happening in, in the environment. And I find that to be inspiring because uh, if I were to be uh, economically successful, even though probably not to that scale, I will probably take my unique skill in getting people organized towards a goal and start focusing on things that... That I find have a bit of a greater calling, I guess.
3: Who's the most well-known soccer contact in your phone? I'm
1: kind of embarrassed to say but I don't actually personally interact with uh, a lot of a lot of players. Um, I'm not sure I have many. I mean, <laughs> the what the people that I'm uh, closest to? It's kind of a funny. Is uh, the second goalkeeper on Inter Milan? <laughs> It's like one of the guys that I just really like as a person, and we just talk about life. and He's just a really good dude, Uh, and uh, in general, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I just don't really. My my work puts me puts me in touch with uh, with players, but it's rare that I am able to establish a real personal relationship, and I don't seek it because I don't, I just don't care for the limelight. Um, so in this case, I connected with him on a personal level, and I really admire him as a as a person. So it's probably the only one that I uh, stay in touch with.
3: What's the book that has impacted you the most?
1: There's been many. And one of the ones that I read recently that ties to the st- a lot of the stories and the principles that I've discussed. It's um, I discussed it before. It's called the the messy middle, and it talks about. Um, what it's like to go from the moment you start a company to selling it, but really focuses on everything that goes in, in between, and it um, it draws from um, a lot of uh, hard-learned lessons. And I found that book to be inspiring and very practical. Um, so from a business perspective, I, w- I will say that. From a more life perspective, um, I I l- love existentialist philosophers. And a lot of some of the things that I discussed about um, the way that I try to live my life come from philosophers such as uh, Nietzsche or Camus and people that are kind of in the existentialist uh, camp. So probably in the way that I've shaped up to be, I will say those have been the ones that have more fundamentally influenced my perspective.
3: Give me a film recommendation.
1: I watch a lot of films, so I should. I'm trying to think of what uh, is particularly meaningful. Um, I can't really think of anything particularly inspiring. What's the most recent one? Um, one of the most recent ones that I that I I, I also really like um, astrophysics, and it actually ends up tying to a lot of philosophical elements. So even though it's the big Hollywood production, I really like Interstellar. Um, I'm very very fascinated with. Uh, with the uh, the thought about space exploration, I think it it brings about a lot of questions about who we are. It really puts things into perspective I think uh, and goes to the bottom of a lot of questions around philosophy and religion and um, so even though obviously there's a lot of Hollywood uh, in it um, I found something really humbling in the experience and the way the movie is shot of traveling traveling to space and uh, and so that that's a that's a movie that i that I really Really enjoyed on just a deeper level.
3: You get to have dinner with three people in the soccer world. Let's assume language is not a barrier. Who are the three?
1: So I have to go revert back to, um, AC Milan, just because that's kind of my my uh, frame of reference. Um, At the moment, um, I'd probably include Donnarumma, just because as a goalkeeper is up and coming and has gone through a lot being so young i i'd love to see if there's more than what you see in in the press i definitely throw gattuso in there just because it's gattuso and even though he's probably not the most educated of uh, of the player there's something i think highly inspiring uh, about him and his uh, his approach uh, uh to life and then i'll probably throw uh, an old glory i'd be Paolo Maldini grew up not far from me. I actually, r- remember running into him on the streets as a as a young boy with my babysitter. Um, so maybe I throw Paolo in there. It's a good good legend, and I think Paolo Gattuso and Roma would be kind of an interesting dinner.
3: And where would you take them if you had to take them to a New York City restaurant?
1: New York City restaurant? I maybe go. I go to a place like uh, Hearth in uh it's on i think 12 east East 12th and uh, first avenue it's a kind of tuscan uh italian place really really good uh, really good food but also laid back setting and uh, what i love about it is that they have uh, at least they used to have a little box where you could hide your cell phones and so i'm old school so i like uh, i like having dinner not to have be bothered by cell phones so you can hide your phone and like truly focus on the conversation as opposed to keep worrying about you know who's texting
3: how can people follow you
1: i'm admittedly not very active in in social media Um, it's something that i've thought about changing not so much because i care about the attention but because i i have a lot to say and i keep thinking about how i can capture some of this knowledge and maybe make it so maybe there'll be uh, different venues at the moment uh, i'm trying to be more proactive in writing content through our blog uh, so a lot of the articles that we write are actually generally authored by me with then with the assistance of the team um, but eventually i'd love to be able to write more about business and life and the philosophy behind what we do
3: what's the storelli handle for oh, social it's
1: dot uh, storelli.com
3: and for instagram and twitter it's
1: storelli soccer on on instagram and that's our main channel and i think it's a uh, storelli soccer on facebook as well
3: last one who do you think I should interview on this podcast.
1: Should go maybe with the third best player in the world. <laughs> Piotek.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm 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 going to task you to get him for me.
1: Okay, let's do it.
3: I might, I might even have you sit in on it. And <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. now watch the third best player in the world being interviewed.
1: It'd be very disappointing if it turns out he's a totally bland person <laughs> without personality. You know.
3: <laughs> well, hey, it doesn't matter. He's the third best player in That's the world. True. So, all right, Claudio. First and foremost, thank you so much. I've been chasing you, trying to get you on the podcast for a good part of, of probably over a year or so been one of the toughest to to get hold of but you're you're a busy man (laughs) uh appreciate the time and um best of luck man it's a really inspiring story and there's tons of learnings here for anybody whether it's for you know in their personal career or somebody who's looking to to start a business so we very much look forward to seeing you progress with this and seeing uh, strongly succeed so thank you so much
1: thank you for having me i love the podcast and everything you do so i appreciate it
3: thank you listening i hope you enjoyed it if you did please subscribe on itunes and write a review i would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time if you have any feedback or ideas feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffee stay tuned for the next episode it will be another amazing one thanks again and have a great week